The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed on the Nova Society are those of our guests and panel members and do not represent the views, thoughts, and opinions of any institution any member of the Nova Society is associated with. The material information presented on the Nova Society is for general information purposes only. Reproduction or dissemination for the purpose other than education is prohibited without express written consent of the Nova Society. We'd like to welcome everyone back to the Nova Society. and Today we're going to actually continue our conversation from the last episode where we received an email from a listener that was asking us what was the possibility of the United States leaving NATO and what that might look like for world politics after the United States did so. And from that conversation, Scott asked a very interesting question about the listener, and that led to a more in-depth look at what we might be looking at if the United States was to leave NATO for the rest of the world. So let's listen in. I'm curious where this question is coming from. This is question it, is it came, a European or is it an American who's asking? It is a European, actually. Okay. It is a, it actually it is from England. Huh. Okay. Um, which kind of surprised me. I thought it'd be you know probably from European country, but it's actually from uh, the United Kingdom, which I thought was kind of interesting in its well. Well, I mean the perspective, the perspective of a country that's still reeling from. Brexit, you know, I think that disaster. Yeah. I mean, we're not pulling out of an EU, but United Nations and NATO are probably the, the closest that we may have to compare to. So, um, but you know, it's really interesting to me is how many of these mailbag questions are coming from European audiences. Um, because that says a lot about the larger narrative of where the United States is at. In you know, and the impact that's going to have on the global world, and you know, a lot of those European nations have experienced one way or another some version of what the United States is going through right now. So on on one hand, there's you know, I'm sure some popcorn eating and and mild interest in what's happening, and I'm sure there's also some like latent you know older siblingness you know, sitting back and waiting for us to have our moment and come back crying and ask for help. Well, it's like uh, a great quote from uh, Winston Churchill was, Americans will always do the right thing, but only after they've tried everything else first. Mm -hmm. And that's such an appropriate comment. And let's face it, I agree with with you, Priscilla. Might have a lot to do with, especially this coming from the United Kingdom. And actually the next question I've got is from the mailbag and comes from Europe. Uh, but uh, in, in, to this one, it might have to do with their experience with Brexit uh, and the experience of the British people who voted for it. It was very, very close. The vote was extremely close. And now you're getting a lot of pushback. If you see the documentaries out there, uh, there was a, something on the news the other day of lorry drivers who said, I now hate my job in the United Kingdom because of all of the restrictions that exist because now we're not in, we're not in the European union. So you're going to say, Scott, I was just going to say that going back to the eighties, um, I remember a European friend of mine saying that everybody in the world should get a vote in America because (laughs) everybody in the world is affected by what we do. And, and, uh, it's unfair that we should leave America to the Americans. 
And, you know, I mean, obviously <laughs> that's not, not in the cards. It's not going to happen. Sorry. Sorry, fellas. But, uh, you know, at the same time, I think people understand around the world that the United States holds this thing together. And we've had, um, you know, relative peace and prosperity for a really long time now, you know, seven decades of it probably um, due to the alliances that the United States has entered into. And and why, you know, the only reason that Trump is against this is because he's pro-Putin and he's been a, a Russian asset his entire life. And, uh, you know, going back to... Uh, Semyon Maglivlevich was one of the first oligarchs who uh, who took Trump under his wing, going way back into the 1980s. It's uh, it, it's it's unseemly and it's incredible to me that 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 so much of the United States is still in thrall to this person. Yeah, it, does, and, it is. Yeah, good. Bro. Sorry. Yes. Sorry, Mark. To your to your point, Scott, um, I've um, known a lot of Europeans in my lifetime, and um, they've said to me that um, you you know they they've been on the receiving end of American policies, American foreign policies, and they were very much worried about Bush the second, for example. Um, and um, I remember Canadians telling me that they were afraid to come here after um, 9-11. They were afraid they were going to be killed if they and shot if they said the wrong thing. Um, and it's very much a shame that Americans, we Americans, are unaware entirely of the effect that our policies have on Europe. and that we have so much cultural and economic and military importance around the world and that what we do what we do and for whom we vote really does matter around the world um and that i mean people will say well i'm not you know i'm i'm not voting for you, you know because of somebody in france wants me to vote this way or that way um but we're not they haven't never been there to see the outcomes and never experienced those people's lives or or anything like that and and so i think that we're so insulated and and isolated that, that you know that simply doesn't help the whole as you say the enthrallment with uh with trump is um we i think that we're that we're, we're going to pay all of us including those of us who know better, um, will wind up paying an extraordinarily heavy price for this cult. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. agree. I don't even know if the cult members are going to understand what has happened and what they have caused after the outcome. Because they won't see the the cause being... The direction they voted like it's going no. to be the cause is going to be literally everything everything but right. but you know i think brooke, brooke you said one thing that you know kind of resonates with um when i was growing up there was a lot of narrative in my incredibly conservative community around disdain for the united states being 
the military and economic power that it was. That's like, why are we putting all of our effort and money into these foreign things? Why aren't we taking care of our own people? Never mind, these are the same people trying to get rid of like welfare and Medicaid, but you know, that's neither here nor there. And I, you know, I hear kind of what they're saying because it really sucks when you look at our overall federal budget and we're putting a bajillion dollars into our military and nothing into our social welfare plans. But that argument fails to see, you know, a, a bigger, broader picture around the extent to which the United States is is basically holding everything together. That was a commitment that I think the country took unofficially after at the end of World War II and the whole superpower business. It's like, well, it's not Russia. Let's make sure it's us. Um, but that's that's not sustainable. I mean, there's no empire that's ever been able to sustain for a significant long period of time. Now they can try, you know, but a thousand years of, you know, Roman empire or whatever versus 70 years of American, you know, that's, that's, there's a lot of parallel there in the scheme of things just because of how quickly technology and culture have progressed since the end of world war II. And I agree, there's a lot of correlation historically as it relates to empires. And anybody that doesn't think the United States is is an empire, that they don't believe that, uh, is wrong. We are an empire. We are the world's policemen. And that has been the case since after World War II, when we showed that military might really was, was significant, as well as our industrial might. We had industrial might and military might that no one else had. And yes, I think that there is a lot of disdain for the fact that the United States is the world leader, the the, the young nation of the United States. Now, one of the things that Brooke said was, is that we are unaware. I don't think it's that we're unaware of what happens. I don't think we care. I think that the average person just doesn't care what's going on over in Europe. They, they're only, we're a very, very selfish group. We only, we're very self-centered. So the idea that, you know, we are unaware of what happens, I, I just don't think that we, we really uh, care. I agree with Scott some, in some ways that maybe the Europeans should have a voice uh, in, in what, what happens in the United States, because it does impact them immensely. Now to the original question, I'm going to say that I think that it is more a threat and something to tell the base that they want to hear. Those same, you know, self-absorbed people who are only interested in themselves uh, for the same reasons that Priscilla mentioned. Why are we spending gazillions of dollars on military that we are not going to use here at home? And the idea that the United States could be attacked. Uh-oh, Scott's got something. Well, I wanted you to finish your thought, but um, but I do want to uh, chime on that because when Priscilla said it, I I thought, yeah, that's interesting. Um, I had the, you know, I I I've worked in Europe. Pretty, uh, the last two companies that I've worked for have been in Europe. Uh, one in France, one in Germany, and I used to fly into Zurich Airport for one of them and Frankfurt Airport for another. And here's the thing, you go to these airports and you walk around and you're like, wow, why can't the, like, why can't JFK look like this or LaGuardia? And now they are more or less, they are getting spruced up a little bit. But, um, but you know, it, it was like, there are times when I've come back from like JFK from foreign travel and I've walked down these hallways that are so old, 
and you know were made in the 60s and they have not been updated and it's just almost embarrassing that this is the first thing that people who are traveling to the united states on their way to customs and passport control are walking past this because it's such a horrible looking thing and i and i think i've probably felt that the first few times i went to europe and i may have stopped doing that when I actually had to rent a car once to go from Zurich to uh, Colmar, France, and paid European gas prices. And when I went into a building, where the office building that I worked in in Germany, in Stuttgart, and there was no air conditioning in the building because energy prices are so high there. And we do get a lot out of it. We it's different. We get different things than they get. You know, they may have the really nice airports and the modern rail that we don't have. I mean, taking the Excella from here in Stamford, Connecticut, down to Washington D.C. is a tooth rattling experience. And you 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 take uh, high speed trains in Europe, and you don't even know the train is moving unless you look out the window. So. You know, like they, they do certain things a lot better than we do, but we have a lot of advantages here that we get because of our leadership position in the world. And right. and I don't think that we should ever abdicate that in any way, shape or form. And certainly leaving NATO would be a huge step in that direction. Absolutely. And if you really want to go to a bad airport, the last uh, I, I was over in England, Heathrow. But then again, the British seem to enjoy uh, what they call the nostalgic look. Like when you've got, when you've got wallpaper, I was, I was staying above a pub. I was at a conference and I was staying above a pub, uh, that was in Burrowbridge and they, they put me up in this, this room above a pub, which was, I thought was great. And there's, there's, uh, the, the wallpaper is peeling off. And I said, the wallpaper's peeling off. They go, yeah, that's British nostalgia. <laughs> That's, that, that to them is just, I was like, okay, uh, I could have stayed at a holiday and express last night, but when it comes down to, uh, the, the, the question, I don't, I think, honestly think it's a, a threat because I think that even though, as, as Scott mentions, all those people that would be in, would be in the administration, if the, if a second turn, God forbid, uh, was to happen, even though they talk a good game today, I really have a, a, a question as to, because let's face it, when you get power, you want to hold on to it. And the consequences of leaving NATO, and it's not only the military consequence, the economic consequences of leaving NATO would be huge to the United States. And I think that might stop them from uh, from doing that. On the flip side, if they do leave NATO and we do experience all those consequences, maybe it might be a kick in the ass towards green energy and some of those liberal movements that we've been trying to push toward so we don't be so reliable, reliant on things like foreign oil and stuff along those lines. But that's just the optimistic silver lining. We're going to fall into mad chaos and completely go into Armageddon and self-destruct. But I'm going to hope for green energy. Well, and, and let's face it, a lot of people talk about our reliance on foreign energy. And the fact is, is that we don't rely, really rely on it. We do that to prop up those nations, such as in the Middle East, where we've talked about this before numerous times. If they aren't selling oil, what are they going to sell? Sand? 
there's nothing there. there there's no real industry. There, there's nothing there for them to have an economy. If the United States was to stop buying oil from the Middle East, the economy of the Middle East would collapse. And then an already powder keg of an area would turn into, as you say, Armageddon. So, uh, right. And, and it's also a form of leverage, you know, absolutely. the customer, the customer is always right. And when we are the customer, we demand that they behave themselves in certain ways that they may not otherwise behave themselves in. And, and, uh, and, and so buying foreign oil is, a relatively small percentage of our oil comes from other countries. Most of it comes from Canada and Mexico, but you know, it is a form of leverage. And we've been doing more drilling under Biden than we did under Trump and under Obama. And to my utter distress, the green energies that I thought were going to be so prevalent now are not in fact happening. And the green energy industry is going as far as um, their um, ability to attract, you know, seed money and and um, investments and stuff like that. And and big oil is is on the rise again. Um, so uh, as far as Trump's drill, baby drill, Biden is drilling more than than Trump ever did. Yeah, I'll say this though. Uh, I remember when uh, Obama did the his infrastructure stuff, and there was a lot of talk about shovel-ready jobs that weren't quite shovel-ready and didn't get going until Obama was actually out of office, even. Um, and you know, it's there's nothing really unusual about policy being way ahead of reality. And uh, right now, we're in a position where we have. A lot of green infrastructure jobs to fill that can't be filled because we don't have the people to fill them. And the material is unavailable to uh, build like windmills and things like that out out at sea. So, you know, we, we have to wait for the the um, practical stuff to catch up to the ideal. And, you know, that's taking longer than we would like it to. But there's one of the reasons for that is there's a lot of competition for green energy from around the world. And, you know, we're playing in a global marketplace for the component parts that make up uh, a lot of green energy. And, and we've had this discussion before, probably a couple of months ago, we were discussing Nikki Haley. I, of course, I'm in the Rotary here in Spartanburg, and we had the lieutenant governor of South Carolina come and speak to to the Rotary Club. And of course, most of the members of the Rotary Club, dear friends of mine, are all very conservative, very much against green energy. Uh, you know, they want to have their Mercedeses and this, that, and the other, and use as much gas as they possibly can and cannot see a future uh, in green energy. Of course, I always remember, I always remind them that back in the early 20th century, the people that loved to ride horses didn't see really much into Henry Ford's ideas and that that was probably something that was non-sustainable. And when they talk about the charging stations, I also remind them that how many gas stations were there in 1901? Uh, not very many. So again, the infrastructure catches up. But when she came and spoke to us, she said the green energy that is being uh, the industry of green energy in South Carolina with the contributions from the federal government 
added up to $16 billion in revenue for the state of South Carolina. And now all these people that were like, oh, green energy sucks. You know, we don't want to do this. Now they're standing up cheering to it. And it was like, oh, yeah, this is great. Green energy. This is this is fabulous stuff. And, uh, and then, of course, the next meeting, they're all like, oh, I hate green energy. Because they quickly forget these $16 billion that, and it surprised me how much green energy industry is in South Carolina. But when you really think about it, we are such, we were such an agrarian state. It is these industries. We have a huge, and I've mentioned this before, a huge BMW plant right here in the upstate has a gorgeous, uh, a center, uh, a visitor center. They are in, in cooperation with Clemson University and the University of South Carolina and the University of North Carolina for auto technology. I mean, it's just it's just amazing. We have a massive Michelin plant, which for those that, who don't know, that's a French company. Michelin is a French company. We have we have a massive Delta plant. All these all these plants that we have here in South Carolina, and that's because we switched from agrarian to industrial and green energy followed, and we got the money for it. The federal government gave us the seed money to get these things started. So, I mean, people people like to beat up on green energy, but the fact is that I think it is something that's going to it's gonna come to fruition whether we like it or whether we don't, and we might as well get used to it. Remember, the combustion engine of Henry Ford was a novelty at one time. There was no infrastructure. If you owned a car, where were you going to get You had to, first of all, you had to find a place that had gas. And you probably carried some gas cans with you because I think probably the Model T got a grand total like one mile to the gallon, however many of that, you know, whatever it did. Um, so it will follow at some point in time. Priscilla, you're going to say something. Oh, I there was were no say. roads. That's yeah. What, sorry, that was all I was going to say. Detail. There were no yeah. roads. If there you were got, no roads. You know, <laughs> fifty yards somewhere through the woods on some kind of trail before you broke down, you were or fifty feet or something. You were doing really, really well. <laughs> well, let's face it? it. As bad as that was, people still bought them. Yeah. Well, what was the name of that one person, Horatio something or other, who did the first um, transcontinental road trip? And it took an obscene amount of time and like literally having to, you know, every, every repair of the car ended up being some kind of like chewing gum and duct tape kind of job simply because the resources didn't exist, you know, so they had to do the thing. And, and on the, the green energy thing, I think when it gets to a point where the average consumer doesn't feel like green energy is the energy of the elite, then it'll, you know, narrative will flip very quickly. Like I was uh, last year in the car market and I was looking at electric cars. And aside from the fact none of them were available because of other shortages with um, computer software for cars, um, the cost of an electric car versus the Nissan I ended up getting was astronomically different. And, you know, right now we, we want to move in the direction of green energy, we have to make it affordable to the consumer. And there just isn't that motivation yet when we're prioritizing all of these other things. Right, right. The Absolutely. trucks will help, the pickup trucks, the 
electric uh what is it f-150s and oh yeah yeah right uh you know so it doesn't look like a prius you know (laughs) well yeah yeah and down here in the south having pickup trucks that were electric would be a huge boon because everybody here even myself has a pickup truck. And if you don't have a pickup truck, you are, you're you're like, I don't know, you must be from out of town. And that's kind of the way it works down here. So that's all the time we have for today's episode. The Nova Society is a production of the Phoenix Research Institute. We'd like to thank our sponsor for this episode, the Journal of Interdisciplinary Conflict Science. The JCIS is an open journal for upcoming scholars. The JCIS is currently accepting article submissions on an ongoing basis. The JCIS is a publication of Nova Works, a scholarly depository at Nova Southeastern University. A link to the journal is in our description. We'd also like to thank our podcast partners, Buzzsprout, who hosts the Nova Society, Audacity, who is our editing partner, and Podkite, who does all of our analytics. We'd also like to thank iHeartRadio, where people get their music and podcasts, Apple iTunes, the largest source for music and podcasts on the internet, Spotify, the most popular source for the Nova Society. The Nova Society is available on all these and other quality platforms mentioned in our description. We'd also like to thank our listeners. Without you, the Nova Society would not be possible. If you have a comment, a question, or would like to be a guest on the Nova Society, we can be reached at nova.society.podcast at gmail.com. Always remember, the power of society is knowledge. So for Dr. Scott Gershwer, Dr. Brooklyn Ann Weldon, Dr. Priscilla Hobbs, and all of us here at the Nova Society, I'm Dr. Mark Bound. Be well, and we hope to see you again next time.